Good day to you, brothers, sisters, friends, and new faces. Welcome to Current Events and Christian Expectations. And today in this podcast, we're going to discuss the laws and how many are too many. Today, we're going to lead off with Mark 12, 28 through 34. As usual, we'll have many other scriptures that we'll reference and read today, and we'll put those in the overview. So, with the laws of our country under the influence of the Holy Scriptures, let's just dig right in. All right, good evening to everybody out there in podcast land. The current event is based on the belief that too many laws bring major injustices. For example... There's the recent expansion of the IRS to over 87,000 new employees. Just think of the regulations that will come with those, and regulations mean ability to violate, and therefore it's a law of some kind. And the Inflation Reduction Act, $124 billion, that's about $380 per person, over and above the inflationary costs that we have to deal with. Regs, regs, and more regs. Here's a quote from Herbert Schlossberg in his, I might add, great book called Idols for Destruction. It was published back in 1983. I read it. I recommend it. Here's a quote from him. Quote, whatever rationale is used to justify expanding the role of the state in economic life, the inescapable outcome will be the increase of coercion legal meaning you will be coerced as a person legally more and more in your life, less and less freedom. Mm. Some years ago for a sermon, I had to do some research into the IRS and the total amount of regs they had. It wasn't long before I realized that they are scattered all over the Internet. And the time I got done with the research, the papers involved, because others did calculations as well as I did on this, would be if you took... um, Bibles and had a stack of six uh, Bibles six feet high, that would equal the amount of regulations that are involved in IRS policy makings. Mm. Now think of it, think of a Bible, we usually think of Bibles as a big book, and a lot of books in there, a lot of words, but a stack of Bibles six feet high mm. to match just the IRS regs. So think about all the other laws we have in this country that are have to be dealt with. So um, here's another couple of stories along that line. Another thing that interested me, I was doing current events sermons, like we're doing podcasts now, but this was a sermon on uh, too many laws, like this one is. And obviously it continues to go on. Back in the 1970s, I was doing my own income tax and I had a problem. I called the IRS, got an answer, went back and sort of worked it. And I thought, okay, mm, I better call that guy back. Got a different person, got a different answer. <laughs> Did it again. Got a different person, got a different answer. Found out later that it doesn't matter what they tell you, the final decision when you send it in will be whatever they decide finally. In other words, you don't know. So I decided that year I owed zero tax, and that's the way I made it out. Well, it worked that time. But then I, then in 1986, I was teaching and I, had, uh, I was bivocational, preaching and getting paid for that. Fellow who kept the books of the church, had his own business and was doing them right, but I got a letter from the IRS that said, in two weeks, we're going to attach your savings account and your checking account and take it because you are in violation of yada, 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 yada. I had no idea. I talked to uh, our guy who kept the books. We looked at it. There was nothing wrong. And so, and then I tried to go through channels and got nowhere. Grace of God, someone told me they do have an ombudsman now. 
There was an office created in 1979. Uh, get a hold of the ombudsman. Maybe that person can help you. I managed to get the phone number. I forget now how, but uh, praise the Lord, I got it. And I talked to her, and she said, okay, I understand your problem. I got your information. I'll get back with you. She called me back in two, three days, and she said, yes, you're right. There's, there's no reason there to attach your savings account, your checking account. Your books are in order. No problem, and I've resolved it. So I said, but hold it. <laughs> How can this happen? Yeah. I mean, you know, it, it's, a, it's a small amount of money every yeah. week for me preaching. How is this possible? And she said, and I quote, because I remember these things. In the IRS, the left hand does not know what the right hand is doing. <laughs> and that was back in 1986. In other words, the system isn't designed to help us. And that's the first thing we must understand. Any law that doesn't help us needs to be gotten rid of. Mm -hmm. So the Christian expectation is to understand the laws that matter. Let's start with Mark 12, 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. He's not far from the kingdom of God. Guess who was a long way away from the kingdom of God? The Pharisees, as we shall see. Yes, even in the Old Testament, what Jesus is quoting. Uh, we have that summary. We also have this summary, which is classic, from Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. Exactly. Would that our justice system heeded the truth of Micah chapter 6, verses 6 through 8. And let me add, the purpose of government is not to make laws. That's secondary. The purpose of government is to do justice to do what is right, all right? Would that our government would do those three things. First, do justice. Then, love kindness, love mercy, faithful love. And justice is first. We also have a government who wants to flip that and do all kinds of so-called merciful things, which makes a lot of injustice. You can't know what you should be giving as mercy until you do justice. Justice first. That's why it's turned here as the first term, to do justice. And then you see who needs mercy, and we'll see a good example of that as we finish the podcast. Walk humbly with God, yes, because if you walk humbly, you'll see the first thing I must do is do what's right, and then I will have the clarity and wisdom to see where to be merciful. What happens when laws become too many? Here's a quote from writer Ron Hart. Quote, Harvard University professor Harvey Silverglate, that's G-L-A-T-E, Silverglate, 
the Harvard University professor Harvey Silverglate estimates that daily life in the United States is so overcriminalized that the average American professional commits about three felonies a day. The reason each of us commits a felony plus a day is that we are becoming a country of too many laws. Lots and lots of laws layered upon each other with perpetual ambiguity. And it seems we keep adding to the laws that we have, thus making government larger and more accountably powerful, unaccountably powerful with each bill the president signs. Enacting more laws, laws that even lawyers cannot understand, makes Americans less free. End of quote. That's Mr. Ron Hart. Uh, the professor in question, Professor Silverglate, wrote a book called Three Felonies a Day, How the Feds Target the Innocent. And a uh, lady by the name of Jerry Lynn Ward reviewed the book. Here's a quote from her about the book that Silverglate wrote. That's professor from Harvard. Quote, Silverglate says that the problem goes back to the 1950s when prosecutors attempted to undermine the traditional common law requirement of criminal intent. This means that guilty knowledge, or mens rea, which is Latin for guilty mind, was a necessary element to prove a crime. In other words, the person had to know what he was doing was illegal. He had to know that it was illegal to be criminally punished. Given the massive number of vaguely written criminal statutes, it's virtually impossible for anyone to avoid committing a technical violation of the law. Thus, with enough investigation and creativity, an ambitious prosecutor can gather enough evidence to indict almost anyone. Mm. Again, that's Professor Silverglate from Harvard. End of quote. Or as I've often heard on Law and Order, <laughs> a grand jury can indict a ham sandwich. Example, whether you like Trump or hate him, the raid on Mar-a-Lago. Just think about it. Where does this all begin? We're going to quote, Randy's going to read it from Deuteronomy 17, 8 through 13. This is an important section because it tells us that the Old Testament, although there are laws, and we'll discuss that, the main point is to have justice. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall rise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose, and you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose, and you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you and according to the decisions which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel and all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. So this is about justice, not about making more laws. So we go from legitimate concerns, such as homicide, to any dispute over legal rights and how to handle them. And the priests will be involved. They'll have a vote, I guess, have a judge, even if there's a place for a change of venue, a place where the Lord chooses to have this case heard. How do we go from that reasonable way of approaching problems to the Pharisees' complex bureaucracy of controlling every aspect of life? The usual count of the number of Old Testament laws as found in the Pentateuch is around 613, 
and I've come across that numerous times, and you can find them listed at www.hisglory.us. Now, that sounds like a lot of laws, but once they are categorized, religious laws, the sacrificial laws, the civil laws, the holy laws, which are laws that only apply during certain times of the year, the people were not overburdened with laws. Otherwise, David could not exclaim this in Psalm 19, 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Nothing but praise for the laws of God. Now, note what became of those laws by the time we reached the New Testament. Randy's going to read an excerpt from Acts 15. Uh, they've gathered to discuss the problems the Pharisees have brought up. And the Pharisees have said, listen, these Gentiles becoming Christians, they've got to be circumcised, which also meant, of course, all the laws of Moses and their traditions that they had picked up through the years would have to be obeyed by these Gentiles. Peter, as Randy begins this quote, is explaining why the Pharisees are wrong, and this is Acts 15, 9 through 11. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. Notice, the Pharisees' contention was they must be circumcised, but everybody understood what that meant. This unbearable burden of laws, traditions, sanctions, policies that had gathered like a giant rolling ugly snowball down a hill over the centuries. Traditions added through the centuries, climaxing with the Pharisees, became too much to bear. The Ten Commandments had been smothered by regulations. Note, for example, the Sabbath day problem, which comes up again and again in the Gospels. Um, Granny's going to read from Mark chapter 2, verse 27, but what this is about, Jesus' disciples have passed through a field of grain. Disciples have rubbed some of the grain to eat. It's a Sabbath day. The Pharisees catch him. And they take Jesus to task. Why? Why are you doing this? This is not right. This is not according to the tradition. You've got to quit this. And Jesus says, haven't you read the Old Testament where David needed bread? He went to the uh, tabernacle and the priest said, all we have is the holy bread, but he gave it to him. And the reason why David got fed by holy bread that only priests, says Jesus, are supposed to eat, the answer is in Mark 2.27. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. You know, the other thing about that, too, is what they were doing was gleaning, and it was okay in the Old Testament. That's what happens. One law contradicts another. Yeah. So then the only, only source to solve that is power. That's the problem we have today with our government. Mm. And we see it right here in the Bible. The laws of God, according to Jesus there, were meant to help people, not hinder them. Adding the, quote, laws of tradition to his laws leaves no room for mercy, even getting a little bit of something to eat. Now, it's true. As Paul says in Romans 3.20, the law brings the knowledge of sin. Absolutely. But that too is a help. Seeking God's forgiveness brings us to thank him for his mercy. One of my favorite psalms is Psalms 30. Right in the middle, we have these two verses. 
Let me give them to you, then explain the context. David says, Sing praises to the Lord, give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is for a moment, but his favor for a lifetime. Weeping may spend the night, but joy comes in the morning. What was the problem? Well, as he says earlier, he says, In my prosperity, I said, I will this never be moved on my mountain. And of course, that was pride. And the next thing he says is, And then God hid his face. God hid his face. And I was despairing. And I cried out, Lord, don't let me go down to the shield. Save me, heal me. And God did respond. He did heal him. So David ends up with that psalm saying, You turn my weeping into laughter and my mourning into dancing, and I will praise you forever. The point is, he did wrong. He violated, you know, the will of God. But he's, he sought mercy and received it. So, yes, by the law comes the knowledge of sin. And by the knowledge of sin, we realize who we are, and we can ask for God's mercy and get deliverance. And let us remember that in the beginning, there was only one law. Don't eat from this tree. With the coming of Jesus, the additions of laws would be peeled back to just two, and even then, one will do, as we'll see. The Christian faith, unlike our government, is not to be encumbered with so-called ecclesiastical laws, policies, etc. To add to what Jesus gives us, either by interpretation or tradition, is to move toward the way of the Pharisees. How many laws do the Pharisees have? Well, they're not counted, but they had a lot. Let's look at Mark 7, 1 through 13. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, These people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. There you go. Many such things you do. Verse 4, and many other traditions they observe besides just pots and pans. Anybody who's so concerned about pots and pans in her kitchen has a law and a regulation for every pot and pan. You can think of all the things in life mm. you encounter, and it's a given day. And I'm sure the average Jew violated, as Ron Hart said of Dr. Silverglake's book, uh, three times a day they were violating something. Right. All right. So what was their reason? Well, they called it building a hedge around the laws. In other words, if... If you can work on the Sabbath and you weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath, let's begin to make all the possible combinations of work available, and then we'll be, we'll be the one to enforce that. So instead of using wisdom, what constitutes work, you know, and going that direction, obviously the labor you do during the day, like mow the field for the wheat or whatever, you don't do that. You know, if you're a farmer, you don't plant that day. If you're a tanner, you don't tan that day. No, Pharisees, they had to build a fence around it, and then a fence around that, and then a fence around that. Um, to ensure that the 
original commandment would be followed. And of course, they enforce this by intimidation and excommunication, as we saw in John 9 with the man who was blind and got healed by Jesus. And all their washings is to ensure purity, but they're external, and that leads to hypocrisy. Many other traditions they observe, all hypocritically. So, what is the method of the Pharisees? We've, we, let's um, take a look at that. We've seen one view of them. Let's take a look at the method they use to keep these things and what Jesus says about them. This is Matthew 23, 1 through 4. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. There you go. That's That sort of describes my some of my... And I've had another problem with the IRS. We don't even have time to go into the third item. Uh, but that's my experience. They preach, but they don't practice. In other words, they're hypocrites. They're not out to help. Here's another example. This, this comes from a, a, a sermon I did uh, some years ago on this very subject of Phariseeism in the world. Usually we think it's in the Bible. It's just the ones in the Bible. Phariseeism is everywhere, especially in government and in any place we can have a bureaucracy. When I was teaching at Cincinnati Public Schools, one of the rules that had to be followed was you will sign every student a book. Let's say I have five classes, 30 students a class. That's 150 students, right? Mm -hmm. So I would get at the start of every year 150, 160 books and assign them. Now, what I learned was, being actually the person in the room and not downtown in some office building, was that after I signed them, they didn't bring the books back. They got lost. They got lost. And then, of course, if I tried to get them replaced, and uh, that costs money, you need, to, you need to keep better tabs. What, go home with them? Watch them? I mean, what is that about? So here's what I did. I no longer assigned them books. I locked up all the books. Every year they'd give me 150 <laughs> books. I'd lock them up in the locker. I'd leave out 30 on a table. They come in, they pick up a book we use in class, and I gave them homework assignments based on the notes they took. They didn't need the book, and we had the book. Otherwise, they'd have no books in class to use because they threw them away. They lost them. That's the kind of culture we're dealing with. That's my experience with one aspect of the bureaucracy of a teaching system. Hmm. Here's a quote, another quote from um, Mr. Schlossberg uh, from his book, The Idols for Destruction, which deals with this whole problem of Phariseeism and bureaucracy. There is no tyranny like that of a third-level bureaucrat. <laughs> and, and I bear witness to that. So that's the method. You know, they will tell you, they will lay burdens on you, but they're not going to help you. If anything, they'll make it harder for you to do your, your thing that you're supposed to do originally. Mm -hmm. What is the motive of the Pharisees? Matthew 23, 5 through 7. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and at best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. Right. Uh, they want to be seen as people of importance, that is to say, in a position of power, because this is how Jesus sums up this whole matter in verse 12. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Yeah, they were exalting themselves in their power, and they're going to be brought down. And the mask of the Pharisees, you know, we use this word hypocrite. It originates from Greek actors with masks playing a part. And it came to be applied to anyone who acted one way but lived another. Here's Jesus' condemnation of them in Matthew 23, 25 through 28. 
Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So the making of many laws and enforcing them upon people leads to that inner corruption. And the Pharisees had it, and any government who follows their trail will do the same. The meanness of the Pharisees. Randy's going to quote the last verse here in Mark 3. It's an incident that deals with the man with the withered hand. Jesus sees him. The Pharisees are watching to see if he's going to heal on the Sabbath. And, of course, he brings the man up, heals him with the withered hand. And the result of that we find in Mark 3, 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Yes, exactly. The religious conspire with the politicians to kill Jesus simply because he exposed their hypocrisy. Here's another great example of that from Luke 13, 10 through 17. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each one of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. Shame. Sometimes that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, from this survey, we can see that laws must help people, not hinder them from getting the help they need. That's why I violated the policy of signing the books. I never told anybody, but I had my defense ready if they asked. My answer would be, this helps. Mm-hmm. Your policy doesn't help. The other truth is that of a bureaucracy in itself. They all reach a point, religious, political, business, where their main mission is to perpetuate themselves. Everything else is not only secondary, becomes unnecessary because they want to hold the power. The goal of a true bureaucracy is to stay in power, which is why the classic Pharisee-type bureaucracy is usually some kind of government entity, maybe with a religious covering, which has the means to do just that. The business of government is justice. It is not first and foremost to make laws. I mean, look at our Constitution and the amendments. It's brief. Mm. It's brief. That's wisdom. All right. So it becomes necessary sometimes then to look at a, a, a government entity and say, why are we having problems? The business of government is justice. But when there are laws to keep governments the way they are, injustices will abound. And then comes revolution. Mm. Think of the our revolution, 1776, the French Revolution, and all the other revolutions in history. How did the Pharisee Paul adjust his thinking about law after his conversion? After exhorting the Roman Christians to be law-abiding people, 
and he does mention taxes in that first part of chapter 13, and maybe in some future podcast we'll take a look at taxes and tackle that. Uh, after that, he turns to the law that matters, Romans 13, 9 through 10. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Absolutely. Jesus said it this way, Matthew seven twelve. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. That one command. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That sums up the law and the prophets. Simple. Think of what kind of world we would have or a government if they followed that rule of kindness. What if politicians passing laws took this into account? What if pharisaical politicians had to live under their own laws? One day they will. Listen to Matthew 7, 1 through 2. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Absolutely. Remember Haman? So we who are to be the future rulers with Christ, even now must not allow our churches to become bureaucracies, but assemblies where there is freedom bounded only by truth, love, and the Spirit of God. Now some might say, what about confessions of faith? Well, that can become bureaucratic. They can become laws that really keep you from advancing in biblical faith. That's my testimony. Uh, it's more important to seek out what Scripture says than just to blindly follow any confession. Originally, the Nicene Creed was enough for Christians to rely around for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's one page. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's all you need. My testimony is, when we've gone on vacation to various places, uh, Myrtle Beach or down in Florida, and going to go to a church we're not familiar with, I go on the website and look up their statement of faith. And if it goes beyond a page, I give up. And I've, I've seen them go on for page after page after what they believe. That kind of detail is asking for problems, in my opinion. Uh, our IS, IRS tax form could be in one page as well. Why isn't it? Well, because people in Congress want it that way. How do we keep ourselves, our churches, from becoming modern-day Pharisees, bureaucrats? There are certain scriptures that serve as a way forward for our churches. Here's a short list to start with. Uh, they're not laws. They're ways to serve one another in love and truth, neither as Pharisees nor as sloppy sentimentalists. Think of each one of these of Paul's exhortations as a way of carrying out the command to love in truth and spirit. We just need to help one another in love. Randy's going to read these verses. Just listen to them and think of these are various ways that love works in a congregation. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 22. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, Abstain from every form of evil. Notice Paul is addressing this to the entire congregation. It's not just the job of the elders and shepherds to enforce this. It's everybody's mm-hmm. job. Everybody to be lovingly 
honest, not brutally honest, lovingly honest in truth. Here's another way Paul states it in Galatians 6, 1 through 10. Listen to this. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows in the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity... Let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Yes, notice the way he starts out. We've got to carry each other's load, but we also have to carry our own. Mm. In other words, we are accountable for taking some of our own stuff into uh, our hands and dealing with it, as well as helping others. And then he ends with, especially do good to the household of faith, meaning this should be our main witness as a congregation, how we work out everything through love and truth in the Spirit of God. Always remember, in difficult situations, church-wise we're talking, we're being tested so we may grow in maturity and wisdom. Listen to what James says in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Exactly. Situations, especially in with a church setting, uh, have to be approached in that manner, so we can all grow in love and maturity. Then listen to verse 5. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Yes, in order to love, you got to have wisdom. Those things go together. You can't really separate them. Then listen to verses 6 through 8. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Yes. Whether it's the government or the local church, wisdom is important. Because without wisdom, we don't know how to do things that are right and just and how to appropriately love one another. Wisdom is so important because with wisdom, as Solomon knew, laws aren't necessary. You do need justice. And you want to have some laws, have a few. But what you need is wisdom that knows how to sort things out justly so therefore he can be merciful as a ruler. Let's take a look at 1 Kings 3, 23 through 28. The background is Solomon's king. He has asked for help to govern people because he's only a child. God grants him wisdom beyond anybody who's ever lived. And this is the first demonstration of that wisdom when the two women, each accusing the other of having killed their child. So how does it get solved? You probably know the story, but listen to this. 1 Kings 3, 23 through 28. Then the king said, 
The one says, this is my son that is alive, and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead, and my son is the living one. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king. And the king said, divide the living child in two, and give half to the one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king, because her heart yearned for her son, O oh my lord, give her the living child, and by no means put him to death. But the other said, He shall be neither mine nor yours. Divide him. Then the king answered and said, Give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king, because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Yes, Proverbs chapter 8. Wisdom says, she says, By me, kings rule. Wisdom. Uh, and notice here, he did what was right. Justice was done, and when justice is done, there will always have the quality of mercy about it, just as the true mother experienced. He did what was right and just. At the same time, mercy flowed out of that judgment that was just. Mm. And so it was all a matter of the love of God. Let's remember this quote from St. Augustine. Uh, some of you out there may have heard this. Love God and do whatever you please. But now let's hear the entire quote. It goes like this. Love God and do whatever you please. For the soul trained in love to God will do nothing to offend the one who is beloved. Mm. End of quote. So, preference, modern-day bureaucracies of injustice with more and more laws, regulations, policies, or love and truth practiced in our assemblies. What's to be the model for our lives? People, don't look at our government, please. <laughs> Let us practice love and truth in the Spirit. For there is a kingdom coming where that will be the only law. Mm. Remember, on the walls of the New Jerusalem, Book of Revelation, you'll find no posting of the Ten Commandments. Love and truth are the sentiment, the atmosphere, and the light of that coming great city. And that is the Christian expectation. Well, thanks, Jim. You've given us a lot to think about. I'm sure you might have some questions or comments about it. So please send your questions or comments to eventsandexpectations at gmail.com. That's the word events, the word and, the word expectations at gmail.com. We will use your question on the podcast where appropriate, and we will always answer you. This has been Current Events and Christian Expectations. Until next time, keep looking up.